series into Samuel. If you feel that you want to hear what's gone before, then of course that is uh, available to be downloaded. I hope this uh, got an echo uh, on this, um, you know that? Um, do you want me to use the other one? or Okay, all right. Um, I suddenly thought, I, I was working through, and uh, in the next two or three chapters, there's some interesting things, but it just didn't seem to be um, quite where it was at. And then I thought, who said a series has to work through chronologically? It can still be a series, but we can... Because, you know, we're young, we can do what we want, we can jump around, we can... I mean, you know, it's us, we can do it. So that's what we're going to do. So we may well come back to some of the intervening chapters um, and some of the points there, but for this morning, with chapter 7 in mind that we were looking at last week and this amazing um, prophetic word, a word from God through Nathan the prophet... Uh, to David, and his response, and the prayer of his response, and the statement of his re response, just so amazing, and the promise that was made for uh, his family and his children, uh, a, a promise from God, a covenant uh, promise, and uh, that, was, that was there, and, uh, and then we get to this, um, where we're going to go today, chapter 11. In the meantime, the various things that happened will come back afterwards. But uh, I want you to bear in mind that here is somebody who had an amazing encounter with God. And yet we come to this situation um, of David's sin and God's uh, rescue. So he's received a covenant promise, but then we get to the beginning of our reading from verse 1 of second chapter, uh, Second Samuel chapter 11. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. You've got to understand this is not just an authority thing. <coughs> uh, he was seen as an appointed uh, king, uh, messenger of God, uh, and therefore, an instruction coming from him would be received as uh, an instruction from God uh, directing him or whoever he did direct. <coughs> they destroyed the Ammonites, besieged Reba. David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. You remember that there'd be flat roofs. and From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, the man's reporting back, isn't this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? David sent messengers to get her and she came to him and he slept with her. She purified herself from her uncleanliness. Then she went back home 
the woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I'm pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, how's the war going, etc., etc. David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and didn't go down to his house. And David was told Uriah didn't go home. He asked him, haven't you just come from a distance? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents and my master Joab and my lord's men are camped in open fields. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. And David said to him, stay here one more day and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah Main remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation he ate and drank with him and David made him drunk. But in the evening Uriah went out to sleep on the mat amongst his master's servants. He still didn't go home. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it he wrote, put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. It's dreadful stuff. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at the place where he knew the strongest defenders were. And of course, he ends up getting killed. And then uh, he sends a full account of the battle. Uh, and... Uh, he says to the messenger, you might not get a good reaction from David when you bring this and he'll accuse you of uh, doing all sorts of, making all sorts of mistakes and not learning from issues of the past. But when you've finished saying to him the report of the battle, just add this bit in. Oh, and uh, also your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. He knew exactly what was going on. And so the messenger does this and uh, reports the story and uh, David's response to this is simply to say say this to Joab don't let this upset you uh, the sword devours one as well as another press the attack against the city and destroy it and when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead she mourned for him after the time of mourning was over David had her brought to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Let's just have a look at that pathway to disaster. First of all, we see that David was in the wrong place, in the wrong position. Uh, he's a man carrying God's covenant promise, but he places himself. He, he's, he steps outside of his role. Uh, the place of the king was to be leading in battle, when kings go out to war, the time of spring. So he's, he's stepped outside of his uh, allotted role. He's wrongly positioned. And he engages in corruption, 
and messages which corrupt others. So outside of his rightful position, he has a corrosive effect, a detrimental effect. The uh, Bible tells us that if we fail uh, to avail ourselves of the grace of God, then a, a, a root of bitterness uh, springs up and it defiles others. Others are affected by it. And so we see that instead of going to war, he stays at home. And instead of being busy doing what he should do, uh, he's in that place of being idle and uh, not engaged in the things that he should be doing. You know, in Hebrews 10, verse 39, it talks about those who shrink back and are destroyed. And David shrinks back and he basically ends up seeing his representatives and others corrupted and others destroyed. There's a clear warning there about not backing out uh, of a, an allotted place, role, position that God has for us. I'm not talking about a function. I'm talking about a place in God, a place that he has preserved for us. And so we then see as we've gone through this story that he, he's out on his roof, I don't know, maybe taking the night airs a bit cooler, not sleeping. And uh, he sees Bathsheba. At that point, he would realize that he's seeing something, looking at something that he shouldn't look at. Now, you know, we use that phrase uh, time and again. You, you know, you might not be able to stop a bird landing on your head, but you can stop it building its nest there. Uh, you know, uh, we are bombarded by all sorts of images and thoughts and various things like that. Uh, the issue is not the fact of the temptation, it's when we yield to it by pondering on it or giving it the second uh, glance or, the, uh, or, or returning to it. And he basically, instead of refusing to, to look that way and averting his eyes, he takes it a step further. He's on a pathway to disaster. He inquires after her. And then he finds that she's already the wife of somebody else. But by this time, something is gripping him. Something which is not a godly desire. The Bible talks about this. It talks about the uh, lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. It talks about uh, desires which can overtake us, which don't come from God, but have a strong pull upon us. Uh, and uh, the danger of that and needing to guard against that and that place of security and safety in God. So he decides to send for her anyway. <coughs> and then eventually, as we see, uh, having gone through all the skullduggery to try and get uh, Uriah to sleep with his wife so that he can say that the baby... Uh, if there is a baby, um, is his, uh, well, by this time, of course, he knows, but uh, trying to put, well, that must be the husband's baby. I mean, what scheming? What plans? I mean, there is something very fertile 
about the, the, the mind deceived, the, uh, the, 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 the course to take uh, that takes us further on in, in deception and, and uh, tries to come up with clever plans and solutions, any alternative um, to actually doing what he could have done at that point and to uh, confess his sin. And of course then, when Uriah, who is essentially um, behaving honorably um, and uh, is, is the only one really in this who kind of comes out with any, any sense of, he comes, up, comes out, of course, dead, but he does come out with his honor. And he arranges this plan that involves others in his deceit and uh, in the awfulness of the sin um, corrupts many, uh, including Joab, and uh, has him killed. And of course, uh, even in this land, uh, we understand uh, that in law, if you um, send somebody to execute somebody, you are uh, deemed to be the murderer as well as the executioner. And that is a law that is rightly and properly established. I don't know about you. I mean, I'm familiar with this story, but I still find it to be horrific. I still find it to be awful stuff. And yet, um, what we're here to do is to hear what God is saying to us through this story in our now world and now situation. What do we see from that? Well, we see that there were a number of opportunities which he had, a number of cautionary opportunities, a number of checks, a number of times when he could have gone a different direction, when he could have chosen a different course, but he chose to go the, right, the wrong way. Basically, he's operating outside of where he should be, in a wrong position. Starting off, you know, a wrong position doesn't necessarily mean uh, like what's in the story. A wrong position can be um, entering into gossip. Wrong position can be some little measure of dishonesty. You know, just seem like a little lie, just a little deceit. I mean, that's a wrong position. And what I want us to understand is not just about adultery. It's not just about murder. It's about the things which we can easily find ourselves uh, tempted to. You know, a wrong position can be having the wrong sort of relationships, the wrong friends, the wrong type, the wrong basis of relationship. But you know another wrong position? Failing to have the right ones, you know? And the right ones are, if you're kind of not doing too well, or if you kind of a little bit, um, got a little bit of a beef about something, a bit of a complaint about someone, who do you turn to? See, the right relationship. Somebody who would sort of, oh, yeah, I can see, I can see the problem. I can see why you feel like that. Or somebody that would say, you know what, that line of thinking is not going to help you find a resolve in this at all. It's having the right relationships and the absence of the right relationship can be as seriously problematic as having wrong relationships. 
In a wrong position is if we get into a place of self-pity, have our own little personal little pity party. Because, you see, that self-pity thing is one side of a coin. The other side of the same coin is the word bitterness. It's, it's, it's in the same room. We can't dwell in those things. See, what I'm saying is that we can look at the story of David, which is what we're doing, and we're wanting to hear God speak to us through it. But we can't afford to project it into the immediate or the obvious of what he was doing when there's so many things, when we see that there are steps that we could take and things that we could do that don't take us into that same course. So David had these opportunities. He didn't need to have been in the wrong position in the first place. Uh, he went through all those steps on the pathway to disaster. And then, of course, we remember that the scheme to kind of deal with it, to cover up, doesn't work. In fact, Proverbs 28 tells us, if you cover sin, you won't prosper. But whoever confesses and forsakes it shall receive mercy. Very important that we remember that. Also worth bearing in mind, we've probably quoted it. It becomes almost a phrase, be sure your sin will find you out. But it's in the Bible. You know, it's, it's something of the mercy of God, something of the goodness of God, that just like David, he didn't let him just get away. He actually was prepared to intervene, and we'll see a bit more how that happens. He failed to take the opportunity, failed to chose, choose a different course. Of course, we all know what he should have done. The big R. Yeah? Repentance. Simple, straightforward, can't make it more complicated. He should have turned from it. Let's understand that real repentance, of course, is um, not doing it again. Choosing not to go that route. Choosing to go on a different route. And there we see something else happening. There's a, a real serious danger of, in that continuation of that path to destruction, that refusing to really um, take those opportunities to move in a different direction or to repent. I mean, there were a number of them as he went along. We've gone through that. You can end up with like a, a, a seared conscience. It, it no longer seems to be an issue. No longer seems to be a problem. It no longer seems to be something which matters or which is important. That's a very um, horrific place to be. Because of often sinning, it becomes something which is just, well, you know, or it can be consistent with the world in which we live. Well, yeah, you know, I mean, everybody does it. It's, you know, why should I, why should I worry? It's just, you know, what people do. Um, we find a nation declines like that. Uh, we live in a nation where there are things which would have been seen as completely um, unacceptable, probably five, ten years ago, which now, well, yeah, it just becomes... That's how it is. And as I said, Uriah 
shines out in this. Uh, at the point where he says, I will do no such thing. On your life, I would not do it. You can see there's something shining through again, which provided an opportunity for David to be arrested. And so we see that as Uriah, who was not caught up in this sort of, what shall I call it, uh, like a string of corruption, the messages, the people that were involved, the commanders that, that were carrying out the instructions, um, somehow Uriah stood outside of that. And therefore, he wasn't corrupted by that thing. He was operating in a different way. And so David gets what he wants. And I'm sure at that point, he was very delighted and happy because he'd put in a lot of effort to get that. He'd taken a lot of steps to get that. And uh, the salutary thing is, the truth of the matter is, we can actually sometimes get what we want. And the Bible says that God was displeased. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Just imagine that. Getting what you want and then finding God himself is displeased. That's a horrific place to be. And uh, it's, a, it's a very salutary place to be. Yeah, I got what I want. I got the relationship, I got the role, I got the position, I got whatever it was, I got the money, I, <coughs> I got the victory, whatever it was, but it's not what God wanted. God was displeased. And so, God in his mercy, and God in his faithfulness, comes to him in the form of Nathan. The prophet, the Lord sent Nathan to David. This is chapter 12 now. And when he came to him, he said, and he comes with this story. It's like a prophetic story to make a point. And a rich man, well, let me just read it to you. Uh, there were two men in a certain town, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle. The poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he'd bought. He raised it, grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Slightly weird, but, you know. <coughs> Animal lovers would understand it. Now, a traveller came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveller who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one that had come. So he basically thieved it. David's reaction here, he burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. <coughs> Couldn't see it. Completely blind. Could not see, although the prophet comes to him and he's you know, aware of what it is when the prophet comes, remember chapter 7, he just don't see it. He is so consumed with where he is and with his own place and own position that he's like blind to it. Have we had an experience of that? You want to just tell us about that, Ev? 
Sorry to wake you up. Um, part of my kind of serving God is over the years has been to serve John, and I've done that for about 153 years. <laughs> and part of that... Feels I'm, longer to me. <laughs> part of that has been to be faithful to him and to help him see when he's wrong. Cause hey, 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 hey. That's always anyway, thank you, Avril. We'll carry on now. So a critical part of that role I've always felt is to be able to challenge and to... So we have many robust discussions. But about um, <clears throat> a few years ago... I'm going to have a coffee. <clears throat> a few years ago... Um, Do you want a drink? I found that... Um, sorry. I found that I was in disagreement with John with just about everything. And it was to the point that it was a real uh, 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 thing internally. And he wasn't hearing me and he wasn't seeing that he was wrong in these particular things and, and just about everything, actually. And, but it got to be quite a really difficult time and a really difficult time in our relationship. And it had not been what it had been before. And, and John would say to me, Avril, it's like there's something, there's something deeper here. There's something going on that we're just not together on. And I'd say, well, yes, this, 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 and this, because you won't hear me on this, and you can't see this, 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 and this. I was very clear. <laughs> and he would say, no, there's something else. And I just, and it went on for many months, and a couple of others spoke folk to me saying, ah, well, there's something going on. And I was saying, no, this is the issues. John just won't hear it, so what can you do? And it was starting to really affect a lot of things, and particularly affect our relationship. It got quite difficult. And... One of, some guy came through, externally came through, and we were talking, and I was explaining to him where John was wrong and the different things. And he kind of said, this doesn't sound right. This doesn't sound like the relationship that I know you two have always had. And he just asked me one question, and I honestly can't remember what it was, but I suddenly saw that something in me had developed that was really deep and had got, it wasn't about disagreeing, which we did all the time, it was disagreement. There was a fundamental thing that I had taken on that I really felt John was very wrong on. And it wasn't things we disagreed on, it was internally, I'd thought, no, I'm taking this because you're wrong and I'm right. And it was like <coughs> suddenly, I, and I, like I saw it and I couldn't see it before and people had spoken to me. And when I saw it, it wasn't like I thought, oh dear. It was I suddenly realized I had sinned against God because something in my heart had developed that was wanting to be right rather than to resolve. And I really had to, I mean, it was a, a very important time for me to see that, to ask God's forgiveness, to ask the forgiveness of John and those around me. But I think the thing that was so shocking for me, because I'm a relatively self... I can usually work out what's going on for me. Um, I used to want to be one of these deep people who you had to counsel for hours, but I really, I've never been like that. I'm just a bit like an open book. And I think that was particularly shocking because I couldn't see it. And something had hidden deep inside that was affecting everything and was really affecting the very thing that God had given me. Interesting. I can't remember any of that. <laughs> Isn't it interesting? What actually changed it? All right, somebody asked a question or made some kind of passing statement. That don't really seem to do it to me. 
course, there have been lots of, I'm sure, questions or statements made. What did it? Here's my suggestion, or here's the biblical basis. It's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. It's the goodness of God that shows us what we need. Now, we have the choice to accept that or excuse it or defend it, but it's the goodness of God that actually shows us the truth about ourselves. And it's our choice, and our choice alone, as to whether we receive that and believe that, or whether we decide to excuse it, defend it, paint an alternative picture. See, when God comes to us and shows us something, that is such a powerful thing. That is such a good thing. It might not feel a comfortable thing, but it's a good thing. That's God's goodness leading us to repentance. So we're no longer involved in hiding, not defending, not excusing, but facing up to the truth. Nathan, in the goodness of God and the mercy of God, has another bite at the cherry. Having told the story and David gets the wrong end of the stick because he's into his own self-righteousness, he says bluntly to him, you are the man. You are that man. And then he enlarges and says, this is what the Lord God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. Basically the Lord is saying there are consequences out of your own household. I'm going to bring calamity upon you before your very eyes. I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret and I will do these things in broad daylight before all Israel. David gets it. David gets it. He gets to that point and he says, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. Uh, So key, so critical, that absolute point. Now, do remember that at this point is when he wrote Psalm 51. And I, I I want to... Request your concentration because I want to read this as well uh, because this is so critical to where we're going this morning. Once he had said, I have sinned before the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. Then this is where he expanded that. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before you. And here's the point. Against you 
and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. No excuse, no defense, no alternative. I have sinned against you. So that you'll prove right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Get this bit. Create in me a pure heart. I don't want to go that way. I'm turning from that. I don't want to dwell in that way. Creating me a pure heart. This thing which I have embraced and, and, and has taken me that way, create, clean it, change it. Do what only you can do, O oh God. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me to the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. David repents <clears throat> and is restored. Oh yeah, the consequences. We'll come to that. The only way to righteousness is through repentance. Excuses can never do it. Well, you see, um, they all got on at me. Well, they made me. Uh, I couldn't help it. It was my background. It, 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 it's, it's in my genes. Or None of that does it. Repentance is the only way. But what I want us to understand today and we'll look at it as we go through a little bit more, is that with that repentance, it opened the door to God's forgiveness, to the tremendous power, to this new covenant in his blood. It opens the door for us to receive all that his purpose in forgiveness. You know his forgiveness is described like this. It's as though it never, ever happened. Clean. Washed away. Renewed. Buried in the sea of his forgetfulness. Removed as far as the east is from the west. That's the nature of his forgiveness. <coughs> That's why when we come together, we can celebrate. And what I'm asking that we join together to do today is embrace and enjoy that forgiveness and recognize that if we need to avail ourselves of it, let's get and do that because we have that backed up with a new covenant. The new covenant which is stronger that supersedes. There is no sin. There is no power of sin. There is nothing that can stand against the, the power of the new covenant. It's complete. It's finished. It totally deals with sin. And the Bible tells us that time and time again. So that whatever it is, whatever is the past, whatever is our background, it's removed from us and we're made completely clean. Is that good? <laughs> oh, yes. 
Jesus overcame it. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. We're going to share that in a bit. What an amazing victory resulting in total and complete forgiveness. Look, we all know, the Bible tells us, we've all, all sinned, very clear, Romans 3.23. All sinned, come short of his glory. Everybody needs this. But because he died and rose again, because he gained that victory, because he defeated sin once and for all, yes, his life... I like that. Yeah? I, I'm, I'm not very English. You know, it doesn't satisfy me just to take part. The honor of taking part doesn't really appeal to me. But to be victorious, to triumph, to win, to succeed. Oh, yes. Wow. So we're celebrating uh, the amazing victory, the power of this new covenant, uh, recognizing that the very nature of it defeats every sin and removes every stain. Basically, by rising again from the dead, Jesus fulfilled that covenant. He did what was necessary. He vested in it the power that was necessary. So it wasn't some dead deed or some promise, but a power released uh, to his people, to the universe. If we go back to our story, we see that God's word had come to David and the enemy contested it. And God in his mercy and in his power brought David through to that place of repentance, able to put the past behind because sins are blotted out. I don't want to skip over the fact that there were sad and serious consequences. That would be a mistake. The child died. And there was many consequences. Somebody said to me once, they said, uh, wow, if God forgives... I could, I could rob a bank, get the money, and then get God to forgive me. I said, yeah, that's right. Absolutely. Forgive you every day for the next 15 years when you're in a prison cell. You can be forgiven. But there are consequences. It's kind of better not to have gone down that pathway of destruction in the first place. God is merciful. And he's good and he's powerful and he takes us to the place that nobody else can take us. I just want to touch on something as we pass through. Um, he describes, we see the, the agony that David goes through when the child is taken ill um, and uh, he fasts and weeps and lays on the floor and the servants can't get him up uh, until they... They hear, or he sees the servants, they're frightened to come to him because he's in such a state. Uh, but he sees them whispering together and he says, uh, what's going on? Has the child died? And they say, yes, he has. 
Then he gets up and he washes and, and uh, breaks his fast. He begins to eat. And they say, we, we can't understand that. Why are you doing this now? While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I fast? <coughs> Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. I don't believe in building a major doctrine out of one verse or comment, but it does seem to suggest that there is the possibility of, of real recognition once we're in heaven. It's a little insight into, that, into those possibilities. Not a doctrine, but it's a kind of, hmm, could be that David is giving us something there about the future. But we also see David comforted his wife Bathsheba and he went to her and lay with her. She gave birth to a son. They named him Solomon. The Lord loved him. Because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedidiah. And of course the armies and the fighting and all that sort of thing went on. But look at this. What was the promise? What was part of the covenant? That he would have a son and the son would build the temple. And even after all that, after all that situation, all that sin, the huge nature of that covenant comes shining through beyond anything that had happened after David repented. And I want us to understand that this covenant, this promise, which is backed up with the power of the risen Lord, backed up with the fact that Jesus rose from the dead and conquered sin and conquered the enemy, is there for us. The covenant is stronger than the sin. Covenant is stronger than the sin. But I want to bring it back to us because I want us to come into a time of, time of worship, a time of celebration. And here's my question. What, what does a covenant mean for you? What is it for you? What is the covenant? And how are you going to benefit from this new covenant? How have you benefited from it? Just think with me a moment. Just think with me a moment. It's best to think with me by looking at me. I am far more beautiful than Daniel Jones. Think with me a moment. What's the benefit of the new covenant? Where can you point specifically? What did God deliver you from? What do you know, in spite of whether you succeed or fail, what do you know that God has given you victory over? I don't know. We're all different. Could be lies. Could be forgiveness. Could be addiction. Could be an ability to believe that which is right and positive. An ability to celebrate. That's what God's given us. That ability to celebrate. Let me say again. We're here today to recognize 
the extreme power of God's forgiveness. And to declare that it's not in the will and purpose of God that anybody bears any stain or any leftovers because of the huge and supreme nature of what he purchased at Calvary for our forgiveness and our victory over sin. But we're also here to celebrate this great salvation. The fact that his death and resurrection, this new covenant in his blood, is more powerful than any sin or any enemy or any issue that ever existed. Can we join together?